Hi, thanks for tuning in to this podcast about the humanistic approach in psychology. As with all of my podcasts, it is accompanied by a PowerPoint that I give to my students, which you can drop me a line for on dmcdonald at btg-secondary.lambeth.sch.uk. So, we're looking at the main features of the humanistic approach with time constraints around it and how they can be criticised theoretically and empirically. So the ideas and then the extent to which we've got research evidence that supports them. So let's just identify them first of all. I would say the main features of this approach would be the emphasis on free will, an emphasis on personal growth and an emphasis or focus on the self. Now, unlike a lot of approaches, this is truly holistic. And the extent to which I can try and show how they all interlink to each other is questionable. But I promise you, we're trying our best. Okay. So we start with the free will aspect of it. Now, the humanistic approach is... I would say almost unique in its emphasis on free will. Most of the other approaches in psychology have a big emphasis on what we call determinism, the idea about our behaviour being controlled or influenced by things uh, such as our genetics, our environment. Even the cognitive approach, which we talk about in another podcast, while that acknowledges a a greater degree of free will, it still emphasises how our schema can influence us. Now, this approach takes free will almost for granted and looks at the degree of choice and personal responsibility that humans have for their behaviour and that self-determination that comes from that, which we will relate in a moment to the personal growth And then the idea of emphasising the word self and self-determination is how we can try to link that to the idea of self as well. Now, when we say it's an assumption, it's something that's just taken for granted within the approach. They go as far as to say that even if someone like Skinner, the behaviourist, was right with his idea about free will being an illusion, they would say that if it is an illusion it's still an ideal orientation. It's still the way that human beings should try and live their life because it promotes a degree of self-agency, internal locus of control, you know, just a way of feeling that you can do something about things. Now, this free will drives a tendency towards personal growth, which... While Maslow's hierarchy isn't central to this, it is a very good way of us looking at it. So, I'm not sure how familiar people are with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It is quite a well-known theory, but just to briefly recap, it's often conceptualised as a pyramid or a triangle, you know, just where the bottom base levels have to be satisfied before we can go up further in the hierarchy. At the bottom, we have the physiological needs without which we will not survive. You know, food, water, oxygen, sleep, things like that that we need. If we don't have them, we drop dead. At the next level, once we've got them, we need to establish the security of these. We call this safety needs. So that's the security of our own body, the security of our property, our resources, our family, 
And once this is satisfied, we can start looking at the idea of what he calls love or belonging. You know, just a sense of community, a sense of attachment that we get initially from our family and then from friendships and then our broader links with society that we foster as we grow and as we you know, go on with our lives. Now, I'd call these the base needs. And the thing about the tendency of, to, towards growth comes in the next two, where we have esteem. We'll look at this idea of how we get self-esteem, you know, self-value, our respect for others or respect by others. And then things like status and achievement would come into this. Now, all of those other lower order needs need to be established before someone can start looking at this as being their focus. Beyond this, we get to what is seen as being the ultimate of human needs, self-actualization, fulfilling our, our potential. So examples of that could be things like creativity, spontaneity, morality. Often the way that I think about it is that these are, you know, just um, the ultimate things. Once we've established that we're safe in our world, we've got that loving family, we've got that status in our society, then we can achieve. But what the humanistic approach is arguing is that we all, whether or not we're able to do this, we have a drive to try and do this, to try and go through all of these needs. Now, the next aspect, the focus of on ourself. This is where I think the deterministic aspect does come into this approach. And we can see it, we argue that there are two selves that we can look at, our real self and our ideal self. Now, those people who have access to my uh, PowerPoint can see that I present this as a Venn diagram. But on one side, we've got our real self. That's our private self, the self that we wake up with, the self we go to bed with, the self that knows our secrets. It's us. And the other side, we have this ideal self, which is the self we want to be and the self we present to the world. The self that's going to do what we want to do. The self that should be doing. And that's an interesting word for us to look at, the shoulds. Because the related concept here is this idea of conditions of worth. Now, conditions of worth are where we get away from the free will aspect of this, I think, a little bit. Where we have these ideas that are, and often they are self-perceived, but they're imposed on us. Perhaps even by ourselves, though by our family, by the media, by our norms and values, our peers. It's what we think we need to do in order to be accepted. Now, if these correspond, correspond with the ideals of our real self, that's a good thing. But often what can happen is a disparity between the two things. So the key concept here is self-congruence. And now to put it simply, that's like consistency. If this diagram can be pushed closer so the two circles overlap with each other, we are what we call congruent. What we say that we're doing is what we do. Our real self and our ideal self, they match with each other. Now, one of the big things of this theory is that the more of a discrepancy between those two things, the more distress we're likely to feel. So if you can imagine, we'll maybe feel guilty that we're saying one thing and doing another thing. Or people will feel worried that they're going to get found out about the fact that they say one thing or they're doing another thing. 
or even people can feel an anger towards themselves that they're not living the life that they want to live. Now this links into the the personal growth thing because often our drive for personal growth can put us towards doing those things that we think we should be doing rather than the things that we are doing. But if the person has a consistency between the two of them, the person will have a tendency, according to the approach, to move towards personal growth. Now, I hope I've put that as clearly as I can. Evaluating this, we do have some research evidence for it. A man called Harter has looked at um, what he calls false self-behaviour, which relates to what we were just talking about there. So this discrepancy between the real self and the ideal self and how it is associated with mental health issues. And that what he ultimately found was the greater the discrepancy between real self and ideal self, the greater the degree of the mental health issues that the person felt. So that gives us evidence for this idea of congruence of self. Another researcher, Haggerty, has looked at research which, mm, well, take what you will from it. The, there's an association between Maslow's hierarchy and economic development. So it's just showing that areas with high economic development have a lot of people who are able to self-actualise more. To be honest, I don't know if there's a chicken and egg thing going on there myself, you know, just because let's face it, if you're somebody who's sitting in Yemen, you're probably not thinking about learning the violin or opening a gift, just giving page. I really don't mean to be flippant about that. I'm just questioning the research itself and the extent to which it gives us evidence for anything, really. Now, beyond this, when we look at it methodologically, it's very difficult to test this theory experimentally. Psychology likes to have experimental evidence, causal relationships. You'll recall that what I've just said, association, false self, mental health issues, association between levels of hierarchy and economic development. The fact that this method rejects scientific study means it is difficult for it to lend itself to the scientific criteria of psychology. But that's because probably with one of the other things we need to focus on, it's emphasis on free will. It is a free will based theory, which we can look at in an an analysis and use it to compare with other theories. Because as I said at the very start, I don't think there's any theories that do have this degree of free will to them. So when we're looking to evaluate, compare and contrast, it's very good to be able to highlight that point. That said, there is a cultural bias to the theory. The theory is based, while the ideas of self-determination, personal growth, real self and ideal self are um, probably universal, there is this idea with the way that it's expressed, there's a focus on individualistic and Western ideals where they don't look so much about how in other cultures people will maybe look to the other and interdependence rather than the individualism that this theory can often be seen to be based on. Going beyond that though, in terms of its outlook on human beings, a good way to compare it would be it's got this very positive aspect about human beings that a lot of theories have this mechanistic thing where with that determinism and stuff that we're 
kind of like puppets drawn by biology, drawn by the environment. And then even if you look at something like the psychodynamic model, which sees us as being quite animalistic and needing to be tamed, the humanistic model has a very kind of positive outlook on human beings that we all have this drive to growth, to creativity, to morality. So it's a good way of like kind of just using it as a counterpoint with other models. To emphasise that counterpoint with the psychodynamic model, the superego, as Freud has it, is a bit like a, a parent that's telling you, oh, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, nothing's good enough. Whereas the humanistic idea of a conscious, uh, of a conscious conscience is something that's more of a, mm, you're not really being true to yourself, you're not doing stuff that could help you grow. So in that, there is a more optimistic look of things. To finish, we can look at all sorts of real-life applications that this theory has, particularly in psychotherapy. It ultimately led to person-centred therapy, this emphasis of equality, this transactional thing of the client rather than the patient, this thing of focusing on the person's in, uh, own experience. This has been seen in positive psychology and aspects of coaching. Beyond that, we can look at it in industry, the, particularly with Maslow, I would say to a greater extent, Maslow's ideas in terms of those, the, the hierarchy of needs, we see those needs being responded to both in marketing and motivation. Examples being you think about the amount of products that make people think about their security needs and then maybe some about their esteem and belonging or the aspirational nature of car adverts, for example. Um, and then... In business, it's been seen to be a, a fundamental thing for many years for people to be looking at cultivating that belonging thing in a business culture and then the esteem thing for motivating um, stakeholders and workers and ultimately for trying to aspire or trying to get personal development, looking at the aspirational needs and self-actualization. Um, I 